Hello, this is the Hippie Coyote now, and uh, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of podcasts, so I'm also Buttigieg and Richard Del Connor, depending on the podcast. But this is the one I, I really should be looking forward to, being the Hippie Coyote, which is one of my favorite, I don't even want to say it's an alter ego, it's me. It, it's just me as, 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 a, as a teenager, just, you know, getting older, but, uh, you know, the, the teenage me, the party animal, the... Uh, the, uh, well, I don't know why I don't get into much of the drug culture, but I was a genuine hippie, you know, starting in 1966 and uh, until I got kicked out of the country in 1970. Yeah, I'm probably the only, I've, everyone I've met, I don't know anybody who knows anybody who's ever been exiled from the United States. But I'm an American exile. The government actually kicked me out. I was 16 years old and I wasn't allowed to come back until I was 18. And if I did, I'd go to jail. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. I'll come back when I'm 18. But it turned out I was put into a really bad situation and uh, kind of sold off to some really bad people there. And and uh, but I ended up hitchhiking back and forth across the country and and met all kinds of interesting people and all kinds of um, draft dodgers. Even some that was a. In fact, one of my most interesting experiences was I would hitchhike and people would put me up for the night. And one of the places I got put up with. Uh, for the night, there was a draft dodger who was, they were also, he was staying there for, I'm not sure, maybe he was writing a book. And so uh, when I was there for a day or two, I read his book or a whole bunch of it. You know, it was sitting there on the coffee table and oh my God, it was horrific. I mean, it was about him as a, as a Green Beret in Vietnam in 1972. That was when I read that. So in 1972, this is what had happened to him maybe in 1971, but you know, it's still the height of the Vietnam War. And it was horrific, the things that I read in there, the death, the corruption, the, the sadism, the, the prostitution. Um, and yeah, that bread story, that, that shook me up. The prostitution stories were just really vulgar. <laughs> but, you know, that's, it, was, it, it gave me a window. and a, You'd never be able to see those scenes in a movie. The stuff that I read in that book, the true life stories, were the things that I've never seen in any other book and you definitely would never put into a movie. It just would not be commercially viable. <laughs> but his true stories. It was, but it really shook me up. And it also, of course, made me realize how glad I was that I was, didn't go to Vietnam. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, he, but well, it sure shook him up. He became, he went AWOL. I, I mean, if he, I, I thought that I got the impression he was a draft, he was AWOL because he, he was a Green Beret. He was in Vietnam, but now he was in Canada <laughs> writing this book. Um, I wish I can't remember the name of it because, like I said, it was a stack of papers on the coffee table, and I don't remember ever seeing the title if it had one or it didn't register. So, and I don't remember his name, but whatever that book was, that was would have been an amazing book about the Vietnam War, written by a Green Beret. That's the one clue I can give you. And since I read it in '72, it probably was published in '73 or maybe '74 if it got published. Okay, so anyway, where were we? <clears throat> Uh, the hippie coyote here, and I should be looking forward to this. This is a chance to really be the inner me, <laughs> the, the, the hippie me. Um, and, and I'm looking at this. When I, I started this podcast, there's eight podcasts that I started when I was in my car because I could do them on my phone. I was trying to reach out and figure out something I could do to, you know, become famous, you know, living in my car. And so uh, I created these, po these podcasts. And this is the history of American Zen as told by the hippie coyote, which is me. In fact, I was just uh, reading a book in the last podcast written by me, and I was known as Richard Coyote O'Connor. So, I mean, Coyote was my name. I, I really used it, even legally. In fact, on my daughter's birth certificate, I think it says Richard Coyote O'Connor. <laughs> so Coyote was really my name, um, even though I don't use it now. So, uh, but it's still me. <laughs> 
But I'm looking, I had a kind of a funny script here. And I was creating some characters, and I was talking to a screenwriter I work with. Uh, worked with. We wrote a movie together. One first place. But um, I told him what I was doing, because he's one of my fans, as being the coyote and a fan of American Zen. And I told him, and I, I, I told him about these voices I'd created. So I was trying to actually create and animate this podcast with some characters that I would act out and I did them over the phone to him. He goes, well, that sounds great. You should do that. But when I tested it out on some people, when you go back and listen to some of those, um, Eugene, he's the marketing director of Shaolin Records. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get any feedback. I, I shared the podcast with my friends and they said, oh, it just sounds like you're plugging your nose or something. They, they, but they didn't support me. So I didn't even feel compelled to continue the podcast because I couldn't even get my friends to say, oh, that's a cool thing. I really enjoyed that. I, I've not had much support from anybody. <laughs> so anyway, I'm looking at my script here, which is kind of funny. I got Eugene talking off screen to myself as Richard O'Connor, so I was going to play the things as if the microphone was actually accidentally hearing me. And so I had to, I, I was, you know, I'd love to be creative and I'd love to do these things, but it would be nice if somebody said, oh, that's really cool. And then they buy a record or something to prove it. But uh, yeah, I just keep doing stuff and then it seems like if somebody likes it, I never hear about it. So anyway, but continuing on, because I like what I'm doing, so I'm doing it for me, obviously. If I a lot of people are comedians because they want the feedback. They want the applause. They want that love, the adoration. Man, I'm so glad that if I was doing it for adoration, I would have given up 40 years ago. <laughs> I have not gotten adoration. Well, I mean, I've had fun. We've packed places and done gigs. And I've had the, you know, I mean, I've reached my own level of stardom in my own, as I call it, I've been a, um, a star in my own lunchtime. But uh, that's about as far as I've gotten. I have nothing international, no products. Inter yeah, so I'm basically just a local phenomenon at best a few times in my life, and that's it. So here we go. Um, this is uh, number six, uh, podcast number six of the History of American Zen. And so um, I don't even remember where I left off t uh, talking about this, but I do want to tell this story. In fact, I'd started about five years ago working with uh, somebody who wanted to be my manager. He was, well, some people are supportive. He was really supportive, and he was trying to get me to do it, become a comedian. And so I p performed in some of the comedy clubs, which ended up being turning into me doing poetry readings and playing the flute because I couldn't play the flute as a comedian, and we couldn't afford the two-drink minimums for the both of us. You know, that, that was just so expensive, uh, more than 25 bucks a show, you know, for both of us to have two drinks or two coffees is what we'd have each. Maybe it was more than that. But anyway, we just couldn't afford it. You know, we were so poor. Anyway, so I decided to go with the poetry route because it didn't cost me anything and I could actually play the flute. So I felt like I was doing more of what I wanted, even though it might have been such a career, good career move. But anyway, but it was a good experience. I was performing. I had audiences. And, and that to me was still very valuable because it took me after about a year. I was cocky as heck. You know, I'd go anywhere and perform and really, you know, felt confident back on stage as a as a solo performer, not working with a band. Well, I'd been a solo musician, but still playing and singing. I could just do it as if there's nobody there. In fact, my performances as a musician, I, I come from an old school where I was playing orchestra. And when I was a stage, when I was learning uh, how to act as a kid, I mean, only kid acting, you know, they always said, you know, don't be distracted by the audience. Always kind of look in, over their heads, you know, don't really look in their eyes and, you know, form a communication thing like you do, I think, as a comedian more. But, to, you know, just tend to not be distracted by them. Just look out over the audience. So it didn't matter to me whether there was 10 people in the audience or 10,000. I was still kind of looking out over the audience and performing. So that's why when I did play big places like USC, 
and there'd be a few thousand people, or I'd play a small little club and there'd only be couple of dozen people, it didn't matter to me. I was always kind of looking over the audience. So, so I got performing down as a kid. You know, I got really good at performing and being on stage and lecturing. I could do that. But as a, as a solo telling poetry and really trying to connect to the audience and then looking at their faces and actually having to make contact with them and, and, and respond to their responses because I was writing comedic poetry and I'd make them laugh. That was a whole new thing I had to learn. I'd never done that in my whole life, where I was actually dependent or working with the reactions of the audience. You know, if they clapped a lot, that was great. And if they didn't, it didn't matter to me. I was going to the next song and I'd play it just as good, whether there was one person clapping or a thousand. It didn't really affect my performance. So that's a weird kind of way that, well, not weird. Well, it's my way of, of being a performer for my entire life until I became that poet, performing poet. And that's when I started interacting with the audience and getting the response and, and actually communicating directly with people in the audience. That was, I had never done that in my whole life. Um, now, as a kung fu, but they said I was a natural at it, and I did it really good. And I think the only reason that's true is because I'd been teaching kung fu classes, you know, since for how many years? 30, 40 years. So I did have the ability to talk directly to people. But once again, I wasn't trying to respond off their reactions. I was basically shoving information into them. And then if they didn't get it, I could maybe expand on it. But I wasn't really looking for any kind of response. And if I did get responses, they were usually negative because I was usually jolting people or, you know, they had questions. So I couldn't let that affect me. So I still had that kind of distancing, I think, from, but I was still natural on stage and comfortable in front of a lot of people. So anyway, getting past that. So Coyote here. <laughs> and and, and um, I was on television when I was 10 years old debating against teachers. It was a live television, so there's not a recording of that. I kind of regret that. But that was on the Regis Philbin show in San Diego. Um, and before he became famous, he was in San Diego. And then he think, I think he came up to L.A. and then he became more famous. But when he was down there, he was a local phenomenon in San Diego. And I was on his television show. Um, but anyway, let's see. Where were we? Um, so let's see. I'm looking at my list of things to do, and I'm not sure what to do. Oh, it says play flute to Simple Lady plus a vocal. Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure what I was saying there. But I'm going to give you Simple Lady. Well, this is actually supposed to be the history of American Zen. So we should be on level one for a while because there's a lot of stories I should tell about level one. And then we'll go to level two and then level three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and uh, tell all the stories. And that's what I was realizing. If I was going to be a comedian, by the time we quit, I realized, well, if I'm going to be a comedian and I need my own type of show, I don't like, I don't cuss. I don't lie. I don't want to make fun of people. And, you know, and I, 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 I how am I going to structure this? And I came to realize I'm going to be a storyteller. And my goal was to be just the most comedic storyteller there could be. And I didn't want to just tell punchlines, just short little jokes and just get laughs and then tell another joke and get a laugh and then make fun of myself if, the, if I flubbed on a joke. You know, that wasn't my style. So I studied all kinds of comedians and read half a dozen books on it and studied all kinds of different artists and YouTube videos you know, the famous guy people talking about how to be a comedian. And I came to realize, no, I can't be like a regular comedian. That's not my gig. It's not who I am. It wouldn't be my way I'd even want to be known for. So I came up with this concept that what I would do is I would tell the stories of each level, starting with level one. So the hippie coyote um, 
tells the story of level one, and then I'd tell com comedic stories of raising my kids and stuff like that. So I'm not really prepared to make it a comedy show now, but I, I'm going to tell the story. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do now with a less, less requirement of giggles from the audience because, heck, I don't even have an audience. I'm looking at a microphone with a pop screen in front of it. <laughs> that made me laugh. All right. So anyway, um, it looks like I'll play a song called, or I'll, I'll find that recording of Simple Lady. And that's from the level one it equals peace of mind, the first American Zen album, which starts this whole American Zen journey. Now, the simple lady thing, I've, I haven't really told people. It's a lot of people's favorite songs. Uh, this album that you're going to hear it from was mastered when I was in Utah. I recorded it in Utah on a four-track recorder, and then I had it mastered, but I didn't have any money to make CDs. And so I didn't actually make the first CD until almost five years later. Uh, it was released in 2003 or 2005. Uh, was when the actual album finally came out, the CD, because I was just so poor. I couldn't even release it myself on Shaolin Records. Shaolin Records had no money, no sales. <laughs> so, um, but um, anyway, oh, the reason I mentioned that was the fellow who produced the album, who, who mixed it, made the master mix for me, so then I could take that and actually produce the CDs. So I paid the studio time there. The fellow who did that, this was his favorite song. He said he just loved the song. He said that over and over. Man, I love this song, Simple Lady. So it must have some sort of, as a professional engineer, and for me to hook him, you know, I, I kind of thought, okay, there's got to be something to this song. If this guy who hears songs every day, you know, gets hooked on this song, then I, I tend to try to look for a little bit of audience because I love all the songs, but I don't know which songs are going to, you know, resound with the public in general. So Simple Lady is a potential kind of hit song. I, I would think it's kind of like Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones or Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Uh, so that's kind of my thing. And uh, it, it's a story that's actually a, a mixture of two girls. And I'm not going to tell you what the third element, which kind of inspired this story. But I wove together these two girls and this other element into this story to make this song. And so it means a lot to me. Uh, but it meant something very personal from, like I said, this the way that I did it. It's not really about one particular. Well, it's kind of two girls, you know, and they're. Their stories were very similar, and so I had both of them in my mind when I wrote this, along with the third element, <laughs> which I can't help but forget or remember. But anyway, here, here we go. Uh, Hippie Coyote here, the history of American Zen, as told by me, who's the person who lived it, so nobody else could tell the story. I'm the only one. So if I don't tell the story, you'll never know what the actual American Zen story is. There's no way anybody else can tell the story, not even my ex-wife. She wasn't there for a lot of it. She was, you know, she didn't go to the reservation for the uh, Pine Ridge for my vision quest. And she wasn't part of the Native American ceremonies. And she wasn't there for level seven. Actually, she, was she for level seven? Yeah, actually, for, level, for the level seven end of the line, uh, she was nearby. And one of the songs is actually inspired by her, actually. But she wouldn't, uh, that was, anyway, yeah. And then. Level eight. Well, she was nearby, but she wasn't there. And by the way, yeah, boy, she, yes, that's interesting. So my ex-wife was actually there all the way to the end of the story. I didn't realize that till just now. Because then she remarried in um, 2017. She got married to this guy up in Idaho, which is where she is now with both my kids. Um, 2016 or 2017, I think, uh, she got uh, married. And so, um, yeah, and the, the journey ended in 2014. So, um, yeah, how about that? She, she actually was somewhere nearby in my life, but 
not really a major part of it, but still, I'm just anyway, sorry, just having to realize that. <laughs> All right, see you later, Coy hippie coyote going out of here. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you the story how I got my name if I haven't already. See you later. Just another time